Chapter Seven of Roman Color Detective by Grace and Harold Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Seven. Mary Jo Linton puttered around her bedroom that same afternoon. She had decided to spend the day at home with her mother, who stayed in bed most of the day to recover from the shock of the previous evening. She moved her dressing table bench in front of her dresser. This would be a good time to straighten out dresser drawers. She looked around her room. It was large, done in Williamsburg blue, with some watercolors she had made at Cape Cod two summers before, highlighting the west wall opposite the open casement windows. She looked closely at one of the pictures, a marine province town harbor and wharf, with the fishing boats at anchor. The water looked cool, inviting. It would have been a fine afternoon for a swim at the country club. The chimes of the mantel clock in the living room, striking two, were almost drowned out by the discordant shrillness of the telephone. Mary Jo ran quickly downstairs. She didn't want the phone to ring too long and disturb her mother. As she passed the door from the hallway to the living room, she grimaced, although there was nothing left in there of the night before except memory. The husky, hello, sent its vibrations into the phone. That you, Mary Jo? Jerry, where are you? Home. Just got in. Her lip corners twitched before a smile formed. She sensed the release of all her restlessness. Jerry Laughlin was home. She could see him, his close-cropped, stiff blonde hair, his gray eyes, and his familiar grin. But I thought you were going to stay up there two weeks. We were, but my total haul for the week was one lonely bass, and it was too small to keep, so I tossed it back into the lake to keep company with its mate, if it had a mate. That's too bad. Here I had visions of you pulling them in by the dozens. Not me. Then it started to rain. Ever been in the North Woods when it rains? No, Jerry. It's the weather, D-Day. The clouds slap you with everything they've got for a while, and then settle down for a long, dreary, and I mean dreary, rain. After three days of that, sitting in a shack, Hank and I decided we were licked, so we tossed our gear into the car and headed back for the States. Welcome home, Isaac. Walton knew more angles than Hank and I, but there are a lot better things in life than fishing, and you're one of them. I'll be right over, okay? Give me ten minutes. Ten minutes flat. Be seeing you. Mary Jo cradled the phone and took the stairs two at a time. With Jerry back in town, life could be fun again. She tucked the curly ends of her dark brown hair into a bathing cap and prepared to take a shower. She'd plan what to wear as she bathed. She hadn't seen Jerry in over a week. The stinker. She'd missed him. He was important to her, she'd have to admit. The yellow linen sundress with the bolero top. No, she didn't want to be typed into the woman who always wore yellow, even though it was a good color for her. With a deft movement, she turned off the shower and wrapped herself in a huge towel. She'd wear the new shell pink chantung. It would be cool with its cap sleeves. It didn't make too much difference what she wore. They'd probably just sit around and talk. She couldn't remember when she had ever dressed so quickly. She hummed gaily as she brushed on her lip rouge. It was good to have Jerry home, to be able to listen to his quips. Mary, Joe, and Jerry sat in the glider on the terrace, Jerry listening intently to her account of the murder and of how Captain Bill Devon had become involved. The gears in the captain's noggin must have worked overtime concocting that one, Jerry said as she finished. Don't you believe his story, Jerry? It's hard to swallow, 
It's no bite-sized portion. I don't see why not. If you could see him and... Look, Mary Jo, Jerry cut in. The idea is stamped all over as prefabricated. Why would a mysterious murderer, after shooting Blake, with no one around and plenty of time to get away, hang around to get the captain's fingerprints on the pistol? I agree with the sheriff. This guy got caught in the trouble zone when you and your dad drove up. So he stepped inside. He couldn't run for it. Your dad would have caught him easily. But we wouldn't have seen him. Maybe you wouldn't, but he didn't know that. Anyway, you'd have heard him. A guy with a game leg makes an awful racket trying to run. But he had no reason to kill Mr. Blake. He didn't know him. Look, Mary Jo, people murder for all kinds of reasons. You read the papers. We've only his word for it that he didn't know Blake. And don't forget, he's just back from the fighting front. Maybe his behavior pattern is all scrambled. Maybe it's schizophrenia, dementia pericos, or something screwy. You've read of guys coming back and running amok. Don't talk like that. Jerry looked at her, his eyes questioning. Why not? He's Father Devin's brother, and he's not crazy, if that's what you're trying to imply. She was surprised at the intensity with which she had come to Captain Devin's defense. She knew her voice had been sharp, but she couldn't help it. She just didn't doubt him. Jerry's eyes drew together. His lower lip began to push out as he sat in thought. Then his grin sneaked out. So his brother's a priest, therefore he can do no wrong. I didn't say that. That's what you implied. I know a priest who has two brothers who are doing time in the state clink for about every crime from arson to... Jerry paused. What's a crime beginning with Z? Mary Jo laughed. I don't know. I thought you reporters knew all the words. Jerry leaned forward, running his thumb down his fingers as if tolling off the words for the last letter in the alphabet. Guess there isn't any. The letter Z stands uncontaminated, spotless, pure, as far as I'm concerned. If you knew Captain Devon, you would see that all you said about veterans' psychosis doesn't apply to him at all. Maybe so, but his story sure sounds like a dud. What an imagination. Mary Jo didn't want to say more in Captain Devon's defense, nor to antagonize Jerry. He'd see for himself when he met him. You still covering Sheriff's office? She asked. Sure, I'll be right in the middle of this when I get back to work. I may even go back to work tomorrow and take the four days I have left of my vacation later on, maybe in October and go hunting. I'd like to know what's cooking. Can't understand Blake, a county commissioner, getting shot while in your home. Doesn't make sense. You don't suppose someone... Jerry stopped as he saw a car turn into the driveway. Looks like you're getting company. Mary Jo looked toward the drive. It's Father Devin and the captain. Hmm, some wagon the captain drives. He's a man of expensive tastes. That's a snazzy convertible he's got. Taking you for a ride yet? Hardly. I just met the man last night, but I feel there's a good chance he will. Remember, you're only guaranteed for life. One life. Better think it over before you take him up on it. That wasn't one bit funny, Jerry. I didn't intend it to be. Mary Jo stood up and walked to the edge of the terrace. Jerry joined her, and they stood in silence while the two men got out of the car and walked toward them. After Bill had been introduced to Jerry, Father Tim said, We drove over to ask you a few questions, Mary Jo. 
It won't take more than a few minutes. Sorry to barge in when you have company. That's okay, Father. Then turning to Bill, she said, We were just talking about you, Captain. Bill Devon smiled ruefully. So's the rest of the town. Do sit down, Mary Jo said. Jerry remained standing after the other three had seated themselves. If this is private, I'll take a stroll and admire the flowers. Father Tim shook his head. No need of that. We just want to ask Mary Jo a couple of questions about last night. Jerry joined her on the glider. I warn you, Captain, Mary Jo said, to be careful what you say in front of Jerry unless you want to see it in print. He's a reporter for the news, supposed to be on vacation right now. But that doesn't mean a thing if he finds a choice bit to write about. Right, Jerry? Jerry grinned. Right. Mary Jo looked at Father Tim. And the questions, Father? Maybe you'd better ask them, Bill. Bill nodded. Sheriff Benteen called me down to his office about eleven o'clock this morning and questioned me about my part in last night's show. Frankly, he doesn't believe a word of my story. He insists no one held me up and got my fingerprints on the pistol. Now you saw me coming down the highway and passed you, didn't you, Miss Linton? Yes, I did. Where would you say we passed each other? Mary Jo frowned. I remember it was after I'd passed the city limits sign, but how far is hard to say. Is it really important? It may be, then again it may not. It all depends on where you remember you were when you heard the shot. But I didn't hear any shot. You sure of that, Mary Jo? Father Tim asked. I heard it clear up on the school grounds. Yes, Father, I'm sure. Or at least, if I did hear it, I didn't pay any attention to it. There's always a car backfiring out on the highway, and there was hammering going on up in the schoolyard. Bill wet his lips. He was hoping Mary Jo had heard the shot, and could testify that it was before they passed each other on the road. I'd rather banked on you having heard the shot, Miss Linton. I heard it a minute or so before I met you. Mary Jo shook her head. I don't remember hearing it, honestly. Then it's pretty important to pin down where we passed each other. The sheriff seems to know something, but he hasn't told me what it is. I think he's got the exact time when the shot was fired. He's trying hard to put me on this terrace at that time. Where would you say we passed each other? I'd say it was about sixty or seventy yards beyond the city limits sign. I remember, I thought of taking a shortcut into the schoolyard, and then I thought of the poison ivy patches along there. So I went on to the driveway. You didn't look at your watch before you left home? Bill asked. No, I didn't. I wish I had, if it would have helped. I guess that's about all, then, Miss Linton. It looks as though I'm in this pretty deep. The sheriff was plenty rough this morning. He seemed to think he had something new today, but as I said before, he didn't tell me what it was. He did say that the ballistic expert found that the automatic I wiped off was the one which fired the shot that killed Blake. It was a French thirty-two caliber automatic, one of those pistols made by the French under Nazi supervision during the occupation. Some G.I. probably brought it back and forgot to register it with the sheriff or chief of police like he should. At least this one wasn't registered. The sheriff thinks that because I'm in the army, I'm the only one who get my hands on a pistol like that one. Why, after the war, every other G.I. brought back some kind of weapon. Those thirty-twos were popular. Our boys really liked them. They've got a lot of power and put the shots where you want them. 
I could have bought one like that from a GI when I was in the Navy, Jerry said. Sure, I tried to tell Sheriff Benteen that anyone could have bought that pistol from some Joe who was hard up for cash, but he wouldn't listen. He kept insisting that I was the only one who could have had it. He kept tossing that up every two or three minutes. Why do people elect a guy as thick-headed as he is to office? Surely they know what he is before election, or do they? No one answered that question. A heavy silence followed. Father Tim could see that Bill was worried and subdued, not like the previous night when he'd been scrappy and impatient. He wondered what this new fact was that the sheriff claimed he had. Jerry ran his hand across the top of his bristly hair, as if he liked the feel of it. "'That's odd stuff with the police, Captain. Just a fishing expedition. The sheriff claimed he knew more than he did, just to get you to change your story. He didn't get any more fish than I got up north, which was none, because you didn't change your story.' "'There was nothing to change,' Bill said. "'Then he's right where he was last night,' Jerry said. "'I wish I could think that.' but he was so confident. Even after we were through talking and I was ready to leave, there was a satisfied look in his eyes. The last thing he said was, I'll be locking you up within the next forty-eight hours. They were all silent for a moment. Mary Jo moved uneasily in the glider. How about a cold drink? she asked. Bill's eyes showed appreciation. I could use a stiff one. Mary Jo laughed. The stiffest drink you'll get around here is ginger ale. You should hear Dad on the evils of drink. He can preach a better sermon on that than you, Father. Father Tim smiled. That wouldn't be hard. All my sermons are poor. I like them, Mary Jo said. Because I keep them short. Not necessarily, although that is in your favor. But you get your point across. Thank you. I'll remember to tell Father Kearney that. I think he'll be surprised. By the way, how was your mother this afternoon? She's resting. It didn't do her heart any good. But she'll be all right when the excitement of it all dies down. She stood up and started to walk toward the French doors which led to the living room. Want some help? Jerry asked. No, thanks. You better stay here. Less noise in the house, the better. I don't want to wake mother if she's asleep. Father Tim watched Mary Jo until she went inside the house. Then he turned to Jerry. How well did you know Mr. Blake? Not too well. Speaking acquaintance. Did it ever strike you that he and Mr. Linton looked very much alike? Jerry laughed. Yeah, forcibly. I followed Blake for a half a block one day into the Hilton Hotel, thinking it was the boss. I noticed the resemblance myself last night, but I didn't want to bring up the idea in front of Mary Jo to worry her. If the murderer came onto the terrace and saw Blake sitting in the living room with his back to the window, he could easily have mistaken him for Mr. Linton. Bill blew out a long, Whew! Maybe you got something there, Tim. Father Tim nodded grimly. The idea has been running in my mind ever since last night. Did you mention this to Sheriff Benteen? Jerry asked. No, he might think the idea queer, coming from me. Well, I don't, Jerry said. I'll make it a point to tell him. You may have something in that, Father. But who would want to murder a good man like John Linton? Could be a political firecracker. Editors should all wear bulletproof vests, Jerry replied. End of chapter 7